please remain standing. Our reading today is from Proverbs chapter 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Uh, I've got a little bit of a cold, you can probably tell, so I apologize if my voice sounds amazing. Uh, but I will probably have to cough a lot during this sermon, so uh, if I shook your hand on the way in, I just want to apologize in advance. You might want to wash that. Let's open with a word of prayer before we get into this interesting text about work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are good and that you do good, and uh, just ask right now that you would protect us and that you would guide us as we read and study the Scriptures. And so we thank you for this chance uh, just to gather and uh, to read your Word. I pray against misunderstanding of this text, that it can make it sound like we do something to earn your favor, and we know that your favor is freely given to us uh, in Christ alone. And so we thank you for that. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. <coughs> All right, so if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 6. We are doing about a 10-week jaunt through the book of Proverbs. We're still teaching exegetically. We're walking line by line through this text, uh, but we began that last week. Jeff talked about the importance of seeking wisdom in God's Word, and so today we're going to be looking specifically at what the Bible's going to say about work. We're going to be looking a little bit into a theology of work. When I say work in this sermon, by the way, I mean in whatever way that you work. So don't just think your job from 9 to 5. Think that as well, but don't just think that. If you are a stay-at-home mom, your work would include being a homemaker and taking care of kids. Or if you're a student, your work would be your schoolwork. So when I say work, don't just think your professional career. Think anything that can be done for God's glory. We're going to talk a little bit about work. Now, I have had a bunch of different jobs, okay? Uh, this is the third church at which I've ministered, but I've had other jobs. When I was in college, I was a waiter at Chili's because I'm a baller, and I enjoyed uh, waiting tables at Chili's. That was fun. Uh, I, did, uh, I, I worked in medical IT sales for a while, which is weird because I know nothing about medicine and nothing about IT, and I'm a terrible salesman, all right? The client would be like, do I really need to buy this? And I'm like, well, you can. I mean, you don't have to. And so we just went hungry for the several months while I did that. I've worked in different areas, but an area that I uh, found especially difficult was <clears throat> one summer in Texas when I was in high school, I did insulation, okay? So insulation in Texas in the summer is absolutely horrendous, okay? I would drink by myself three and a half gallons of Gatorade per day. That's how much we were sweating. It was like 120 degrees up in the attic. Okay, and that was my job. And as I was laying there in the itchy insulation covered in spiders, I thought to myself, I'm going to go to college. I want to do something different than this. Okay? But the worst job that I had was actually not physically difficult. I worked for this corporation, and my job was literally just to put numbers in a computer all day. No interaction with people, no thinking, just moving numbers from a piece of paper onto the computer. A software program could have done that. And I did that every day overtime and had to come in on Saturday, and it was awful. I came in one Friday, and on Friday, the company would have free bagels, and I thought to myself, oh, goody, it's bagel day. And then I thought, what has happened to me? 
When the best thing of my week is that I get a free bagel, I need to do something different, okay? So today we're going to be talking about what the Bible says regarding work. We're going to be going over a theology of work. <clears throat> and by the way, again, I apologize if it sounds like my voice, my voice might crack during the middle of this. So I go back to those middle school years where my body's changing. So I just, again, apologize for that in advance. Okay, let's talk a little bit about what the Bible is going to say about work. Here's the first thing you need to know about work before we get into this text. Work is good, and God made man to work, okay? Work is good, and God made man to work. Work did not come as a result of the fall. Adam and Eve were to till the soil and to garden and subdue the earth for God's glory even before the fall. So work in and of itself is not bad. If I told you that you could work in any career that you wanted, and you only had to work five hours a day, and you would make a ton of money and not run into any problems, you wouldn't probably think that work was bad. The reason we have a tendency to think that work is bad is because of the fall. With the fall of mankind, work now becomes twisted. The ground now bears thorns and thistles. The two commands that God gave to Adam and Eve were to subdue the earth for his glory, to cultivate it, and to be fruitful and multiply. When they sin against God, both of those things become cursed. Adam is told that by the sweat of your face you will eat bread because now the ground will bear thorns and thistles, and the woman is told your pain will greatly increase in childbearing. Both of the things mankind were made to do now become more difficult. And so work is good. It's the fall of mankind. It's sin that makes work now difficult, okay? Thorns and thistles now grow up. You can't just garden. There's thorns and thistles. So in that job that I had to go to that I didn't like, I had to get up and I had to fight traffic. That's thorns and thistles. And then you go into the office and you try to print something. And guess what? The printer doesn't work. It worked the day before. It worked the day before that. I didn't do anything different. And then it doesn't work. That's thorns and thistles. And then the IT guy has to come and help you, and he's real condescending because he assumes that you should know as much about computers as he does. That's thorns and thistles, okay? And then there was this weird guy in my office that was just kind of strange and always bugging me. His name was like Todd or something. He looked like he gave plasma for a living. He was a weird guy. That's thorns and thistles, okay? And then you have to go to a meeting that should have been an email. That's thorns and thistles. So you see, we see this even today. It's not that work is bad. It's that work has become broken because of the fall of man. And so we even see work <coughs> being used in world history to oppress. So think of the Israelites when they're in slavery. They have to do back-breaking labor, and that slavery is a way to use work that should have been good to oppress instead of to cause people to flourish. Or you see that with slavery in the 1800s in the United States. In the, uh, during the Holocaust, above the, uh, they had these signs that were above the entrances to the concentration camps, and in German it said, Arbeit macht frei, work makes you free, despite the fact that nobody was going free and people were being worked to death. And so work is good, but work has become broken and has become twisted. And so here's where our hearts will go on the topic of work. We will either idolize work, and we will find our identity in our work, and we will find our identity in our jobs, and everything we do and think about will be our work. That's one place that we can err in our hearts when it comes to work. Or conversely, we can despise work. We can fall into laziness. We can fall into slothfulness. That's where the human heart goes. We either make work an idol or we despise it, and neither of those are the biblical pattern. The biblical pattern is that there is a way to work hard when you're supposed to work, rest hard when you're supposed to rest. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a passage that is rebuking a sluggard. I love that phrase, by the way. Look to the ant, O sluggard. I'm going to start using that around the office if I see Tim or somebody slacking off. Verses 6 through 8 
are going to talk about an ant, okay? By that, I don't mean the wife of an uncle. I mean the little bug, an ant. And it's going to talk about what an ant does and its consequences. And then verses uh, 9 through 11 are going to talk about a sluggard, a lazy person, going to talk about his behavior and his consequences. Before we get into this passage, though, I need to say one thing. Proverbs is written to a group of people that are already in covenant with God, okay? This is not a text where you need to leave here and think, okay, I need to go do my best for Jesus. No, Jesus has done his best for you. This passage is written to those who already know God, who have already been delivered, who are already accepted. In this case, the Israelites, who've already been brought out of Egypt. God's already married them, if you will. He's already made them his covenant people. And so don't take this passage as a way to just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Realize that this is written to people who are already in relationship with God because of God's grace and not because of their own doing. You with me? All right. Three of you are with me. Verse 6. Let's jump in. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Now, if we just took the first part of that verse, go to the ant, O sluggard, you already know what the rest of this is about. If I walk by someone who's lazy and I say, hey, I see that you're sleeping here and not working, why don't you go watch some ants? You already know what this text is talking about. This text here is not actually directed directly at the sluggard. It's directed at anybody who wants to seek wisdom. The author of Proverbs is talking to his son, or he's talking to students, or he's talking to young men, or he's talking to anyone seeking after wisdom, and he uses kind of this third-person rebuke to talk about the slugger. I say that to to, to say that you, you don't just need to listen to this proverb if you're someone who's lazy. This proverb is for everyone. So he says, go to the ant, O slugger, consider her ways, and be wise. Several times in the Bible, the biblical authors or the people speaking in the Bible will point to nature for something you're supposed to learn, right? So Jesus will say things like, go look at the birds. They don't work and toil. You've never seen a bird with his little bird tie and his briefcase going to work, and yet God feeds them. How much more important are you than birds? Or go to the lilies of the field. Go to the flowers. They're just grass. They don't matter. We mow over them. My son picks weeds and brings them to my wife, and then she throws them away. They don't really matter. And yet, if God takes time to clothe even the lilies of the field, how much more important are you than they? So the Bible will do this a lot, and here we're told something about going to the ant. Now, let me be clear. This doesn't mean that every time you see something in nature, you should emulate that, okay? Right? You don't say, I see how this animal eats its young in nature, and so I think I will do the same. We're supposed to learn some things from nature, but nature's broken, so we don't learn everything like that from nature. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Here's the deal. If you watch an ant, and this is what the author's saying, you will notice that that ant is always going. That ant is always working, okay? So, my wife and I moved to McKinney several months ago. We love McKinney, by the way. McKinney's an excellent city. The motto of McKinney should be something like, nothing bad ever happens here, all right? It's just this great magical city. I'm pretty sure I saw a unicorn cross the road the other day. It was just awesome, all right? I love living here. It's a great city. It's growing. It's thriving. There's industry. It's awesome. Let me tell you the one thing I don't like about McKinney. Because there is a lot of construction, it stirs up a ton of bugs. And so in our house, we have enormous bugs, okay? I have seen the biggest spider I've ever seen in my life a few weeks ago. It was like something straight out of my nightmare. And so Katie realized that we had some bugs in the house. She said, quote, we need to call the Terminator. (laughs) And I said, how big are the bugs? What do you mean call the Terminator? 
The exterminator. Oh, yes, very different. One wants to enslave us, okay? One wants to enslave us. And so the other day, there were these ants that were in my house, and not only were they working and moving, they had burrowed through the wood to get in my house. And even when I sealed it up, they got through the sealant and kept going. Even when you put something in their way, they keep going. The point he's trying to make is that an ant is working. An ant is moving. An ant is not like the sluggard. He's the opposite of the sluggard because he is working. And he says, go to the ant, O sluggard. And here's what you're supposed to do when you go to the ant. Consider her ways and be wise. Consider her ways and be wise. What do you gain by watching an ant? Here's what you gain by watching an ant. You learn that diligence, self-motivation, industriousness, and a hard, strong work ethic are good, okay? That working hard when you're supposed to be working is good and God-glorifying. Let me give you some biblical passages, okay? <clears throat> Colossians 3, 23 through 24, slaves are told, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. By the way, in context there, that's about caring for your aging parents as they get older. But I don't have time. That's another sermon. 1 Thessalonians 4.11, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 8, for you yourselves know <coughs> how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Okay? Here's what I want you to realize. And if you get what I'm about to say, it will absolutely change your life. Okay? Here's what it is. Your work in and of itself glorifies God. In and of itself glorifies God. We have a tendency to think that there are normal things in our life and there are spiritual things. Spiritual things are like going to church, reading the Bible, evangelizing, praying. We see those as spiritual things. Normal things are like cleaning the tub or taking care of kids or going into work or sending emails. And we have a tendency to think these spiritual things glorify God, but these other things here, they don't really. They're not quite as important. And here's what I'm saying to you. All of what you do is spiritual. Your work, like the ant, in and of itself glorifies God. The reason this is important, because if you get this, it gives your entire life meaning. Because now you're not just glorifying God one hour on a Sunday morning. You're glorifying Him as you send emails, as you swing a hammer, as you close business deals, as you love and care for kids, whatever it might be. That glorifies God in and of itself. We have a tendency not to think that way. Let me ask this question. How did Adam and Eve glorify God? If God made mankind to glorify Him, how did Adam and Eve glorify God? Was it through reading a Bible that hadn't been written yet? Was it through confessing sin that hadn't been committed yet? Was it by taking communion, which wouldn't make sense yet because Christ hadn't come? How did Adam and Eve glorify God? Here's how they did it. Ready? They just were humans. They worked for God's glory. As they named the animals and as they plant the garden and as they talked to one another, that in and of itself glorifies God. Your work is worship. That's what I'm trying to say. You don't just worship God on Sunday mornings. You're worshiping God all the time if you are doing your work to His glory, whether you eat, so apparently you can eat to God's glory, 
Whether you drink, apparently you can drink to God's glory, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let me ask you this question. How does everything that God created, how does it glorify God? How does a squirrel, for example, glorify God? Huh? Does it evangelize other squirrels? Does it lift its little squirrel hands in worship? Here's what it does. Ready? It just bees a squirrel. Okay? That's not even good English, but you get the point. It just exists as a squirrel. And as it buries acorns or bugs your dog or whatever it is squirrels do, that glorifies God in and of itself. So yes and amen to those other things. Still do those things. Get rid of this idea in your mind that there's spiritual things and there's regular things. All of life is meant to be worship of God. Now, here's what some of you've heard me say and you've misheard me. Some of you've said, okay, Zach, I need to glorify God at my work, which means I need to evangelize my coworkers and put a Bible on my desk and these kind of things. Yes, do those things. But listen, I'm saying something much stronger than that. I'm not, saying don't, I'm not saying just glorify God at your work. I'm saying your work itself glorifies God. If your job is to dig holes in the middle of a field and nobody is around you, that glorifies God in and of itself. Do you believe that? I think a lot of us might have heard something about this, but we don't live our lives that way. Your job in whatever you do and my job as a minister give God equal glory equal glory. We are all priests if you know Christ. Let me read you a great quote from Martin Luther on this, which I think is really helpful. (laughs) Here's what he says. There is really no difference between laymen and priests, princes and bishops, spirituals and temporals, as they call them, except that of office and work. A cobbler, a smith, that's someone who works with metal, a farmer, each has the work and office of his trade, and yet they are all alike consecrated priests and bishops. And everyone by means of his own work or office must benefit and serve every other. That in this way, many kinds of work may be done for the bodily and spiritual welfare of the community, even as all the members of the body serve one another. You are a priest at your job or at your home or wherever God has placed you. Your life now has value because all of it can be done for the glory of God. John Piper's got an article online of how you drink orange juice to the glory of God. You're thankful for it. It tastes delicious. You praise God. There's a way to do everything that's not sin to the glory of God, okay? Now, because of that, we should work hard. We should be diligent like the ant. Have you ever heard of the Protestant work ethic? You ever heard that phrase? Protestant work ethic? There was a uh, philosopher, his name is Max Weber, and in 1905, he wrote a book called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And what he argued in that book was the idea that Protestant areas tended to flourish more economically. You saw that in the United States with the Puritans. You saw that in Western Europe during the time of the Reformation. In Germany, France, and Switzerland, the areas that became Protestant actually grew economically, whereas their Catholic counterparts did not. And the reason for that is because we as Bible-believing Christians realize that we should be doing our work as if we're doing it for God. Now, Weber was wrong at one point. He said that the reason Protestants work so hard is because we're scared and insecure, and it's a way to prove our election. It's a way to prove that we are predestined by God. In reality, the reason that Protestants traditionally have worked hard is because we're already loved. We're already forgiven. We're already saved. And if that's the case, then I'm free to do my work for God's glory, not because I'm afraid trying to earn something, but because I've already been given everything. I've been given eternal life. I've been given forgiveness. And so now I work as an act of worship to the glory of God. Consider the ways of the ant and be wise. In the same way that she is continually working, which glorifies God, 
so the sluggard should learn and work to glorify God. Look at verses 7 through 8. <clears throat> Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Let me give you a few other Proverbs about this. Proverbs 30, 25. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. Proverbs 10, 5. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Okay? Here's what this text says. An ant doesn't have to have a micromanager. Okay? Now, when it says here that an ant doesn't have a chief officer or ruler, it's not trying to say that certain ants don't do different jobs. Okay? We know today that you know, there are queen ants that have babies, and there are guard ants, and there are worker ants, and these kind of things. The book of Proverbs is not meant to be a biology textbook on antology, or whatever the study of ants is called. Okay? That's not its point. The point the author is making is you never walk in on an ant when it's supposed to be working, and instead it's watching YouTube. You never have that. The ant is working. It doesn't have to be micromanaged, okay? Um, have you ever seen an ant take a nap? Have you? An ant only has one of two modes. It's either working or it's dead. Those are the two modes of an ant. There's no sleeping or napping. If there's an ant on the sidewalk and it's not moving, it is dead, okay? It's kind of like if you have a pet fish and that fish is on the top of the water on its side, that fish is not like just really super tired. Bubbles is dead, okay? Or if you have a pet bird and it's laying down in the bottom of the cage and you're like, man, he must be exhausted. He's super exhausted, like tired to death, okay? It's the same way. What he's saying here is the ant doesn't have to be micromanaged. You don't have to, have a, you don't have to force the ant to work. The ant will naturally work. What's going on in this text, in logic, it's called an a fortiori argument, Okay? And a fortiori. In Latin, that means to the stronger. I'll give you an example. If I can run two miles, can I then obviously run one mile? Yes or no? Yes. Because if I can do the stronger thing, then I can do the weaker thing. If I can lift 500 pounds, can I lift 100 pounds? Yes. Because if I can do the stronger thing, I can do the weaker thing. Here's what this author is saying. That the sluggard, <coughs> the sluggard who's a human, has less intelligence than the insect. The insect, who doesn't even matter, is working hard without having to be micromanaged, whereas the sluggard is not. It's meant to be an offensive statement, okay? It's meant to be an offensive statement. And look at verse 8. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. She's always working. She's saving up. She's preparing. She's planning ahead. She's being diligent. Here's the thing. <coughs> We have a tendency to forget that the day-by-day -day normal monotony of life is the point. That is what worships God. We have a tendency as humans and especially as Americans to live our lives from one high point to the next. Can't wait till I get married. Can't wait till I have a kid. Can't wait till I can go on vacation. Can't wait till the weekend so I don't have to work anymore. Can't wait till my birthday. Can't wait till I can get this new thing. And we live our lives jumping from high point to high point to high point. And here's what we're supposed to learn about watching the ant who's, when it's summertime, she's working. When it's harvest time, she's working. She's always doing what she's, meant, she's supposed to do. Here's what we're supposed to learn, is that there is a way to glorify God in your daily routine, in your daily life. We have a tendency to love novelty. We love what's new. 
God is fine with routine. He has the sun come up, the sun go down. We have to sleep, we have to get up, we have to go to work, we have to eat lunch, day in and day out. And what we do is we miss all of our lives because we're just trying to get to this next high point. What you can learn from watching the ant is that the day in, day out faithfulness is life. That is the point. I have a tendency to think that my goal each day is to get home and get the kids in bed so I can finally watch TV and relax a little bit. As if that's the point. No, the point of life is all those other things I'm doing in between then. It's going to work. It's talking to Katie. It's changing diapers. It's giving the kids a bath. It's cleaning up. It's whatever it might be. That is the point. The day-by-day faithfulness, like the ant who's working when she's supposed to be working, that glorifies God in and of itself. Your life is not vain. Your life is not boring. Your life is not meaningless. Your life is worship. And if you don't see it that way, there has to be a theological reshaping of your mind. Let me give you three quotes that I think are really helpful with this, okay? The first one comes from Tim Keller. He's a Presbyterian pastor up in New York. He's excellent. He says this, No work is menial. Jesus came not as a philosopher or a general, but as a carpenter. Let me give you another one from Martin Luther about a housemaid. If you're just a servant, you just clean houses, what should you think about your job? Here's what Luther says again about that. In the light of this view of the matter, a poor maid should have the joy in her heart of being able to say, now I am cooking, making the bed, sweeping the house. Who has commanded me to do these things? My master and mistress have. What has given them authority over me? God has. Very well. Then it must be true that I am serving not them alone, but also God in heaven, and that God must be pleased with my service. How could I not possibly be more blessed? Why, my service is equal to cooking for the God of heaven. Okay? And I want to give you one more. This comes from a theologian named Gene Veith. We're going to put this one on the screen. It's pretty long, but I want you to read it. Not out loud. I want you just to read it with me as I read it out loud. And uh, I think it's really powerful. Let's read it. God gives us this day our daily bread through the vocation of farmers, millers, bakers, and we would add the factory workers, truck drivers, grocery store employees, and the hands that prepared our meal. God creates and cares for new life by means of the vocations of mother and father, husband and wife. He protects us by means of police officers, judges, the military, and other Romans 13 vocations of those who bear the sword. God brings healing not primarily through miracles, but through the vocation of doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and the other medical vocations. God teaches through teachers, conveys his word through preachers, gives the blessings of technology through engineers, and creates beauty through artists. God works through all the people who do things for us day by day, and he also works through us in whatever tasks, offices, and relationships he has called us to do. God could have just done everything himself and just have bread appear on our table, but because he likes using humans to be about his work, he uses us in our vocations to serve one another. Okay? Everybody with me? Can everybody hear me do to my raspy Michael Bolton voice? Everybody good with that? <clears throat> okay, let's look at verse 9. The text is now going to shift. We see that watching the ant, we can learn diligence, we can learn self-motivation, we can learn hard work, we can learn always be working, we can learn about glorifying God and the monotony. But now the text is going to shift to rebuke the sluggard. Verse 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Okay? Now, this question, these, these are rhetorical questions. Asking these questions are meant to serve as a rebuke. It's not like, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? And he's like... <laughs> 30 minutes more. He's not answering the question, okay? 
this double question is serving as a rebuke. There are times if I say something stupid or insensitive, my wife will ask me a question that's not really a question. It's a veiled rebuke. So the other day I said something stupid and she said, are you happy that you said that? And I thought to myself, this sounds like a trap. This feels like a trap. And what she was doing is she was using a question to rebuke. That's what the author is doing here. This is a rhetorical question. He's saying, we just talked about the ant and how the ant is working and how the ant is going to actually have food when it needs food. How long are you just going to sit there? You have leaders and rulers. You're smarter than the bug. Why aren't you acting like it? Okay? Now, this text is not saying that it is bad to rest. Okay? Again, keep in context. It's directed not at the average person. It's directed about the sluggard. Okay? What you have to find as a Christian is you have to find that balance between working hard and resting. Okay? It's not saying never sleep. Jews were commanded to take breaks. Jews were commanded to take a Sabbath. Jews were commanded in the Old Testament that they had to shut down the city and throw a big party during certain festivals, and they could not work or God would kill them. How about that? Is that your view of God, by the way? Relax and party or I will kill you. I will make you have fun. Okay? God does that in the Old Testament. So it's not against any type of sleep. It's against being a sluggard. So what we as Christians must do is we must work hard, but we must also rest. We must find that balance, okay? Let, let me ask you a theology question real quick. Are we, as Christians today who follow Jesus, are we bound to keep an Old Testament Mosaic law of Sabbath keeping? Yes or no? No, I'm not going to make you vote because there might be some people that hold a different view. Let me give you some verses. Here's what I'm saying. In the Old Testament, there were all these laws that Israel was supposed to fill, fulfill, they couldn't fulfill them, and it showed them that they needed Jesus. Now that Jesus has come, he has fulfilled all of the Old Testament Mosaic law on our behalf, okay? We don't throw out our Old Testament. The Old Testament's super helpful. But when it comes to the Mosaic law, we are not bound by that anymore. And so because of that, Christians do not keep a Sabbath. Let me give you some verses. Colossians 2, 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, that's Old Testament Mosaic Law, or a new moon, that's Old Testament Mosaic Law, or a Sabbath. Let no one judge you in regards to a Sabbath, Paul says. Well, Zach, are you saying then that Sunday or Saturday or whatever is just like any other day? Romans 14.5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So yes, we're still commanded to gather for worship, but if you work eight days in a row, you have not sinned, is what I'm saying. Okay? Let me give you some more. Galatians 4, 9 through 11. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to become, I'm sorry, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. We are no longer commanded to keep certain days. Galatians 5.18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That means any of it, not just part of it. Hebrews 8.13, in speaking of, uh, of new, speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So here's what I'm saying. Are we as Christians bound to keep a Sabbath? No. Do we, though, as Christians, still take time to wisely rest? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. 
You are wired to sleep. You are wired to rest. You have to find that balance of working when you should be working, but also resting when you should be resting. So no, you're not bound by Mosaic law, but yes, God has wired you in a way where you need to take a break, and yes, you're commanded to not forsake the gathering of the assembly, but it doesn't mean that if you work on a Saturday or a Sunday or something like that, you have sinned. Verse 10, verses 10 through 11. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Let me read another proverb that's similar to this. Proverbs 24, 30 through 34. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Okay, here's what this text sounds like it's saying. If you ever take a break, you'll end up super poor. Isn't that what it looks like it's saying? If you're even like, okay, I just need to take a lunch break, and you wake up and all of a sudden all your stuff's gone. That's what it looks like. This is why it's so important to keep this passage not only within the context of the rest of the Bible, but to realize this passage is talking about the sluggard, okay? This passage is not saying you can never rest. Here's the point of verses 10 through 11 is this. Laziness is a slippery slope. Laziness is a slippery slope. The sluggard thinks, you know what? I'm going to just hit that snooze bar one more time. And now I'm going to hit it one more time. And now I'm going to hit it one more time. And now I've missed the meeting because I'm late to work and I lost my job. That's what this text is saying. How many people, don't raise your hand, have promised that in the new year you're going to get back in the gym? And guess what? You don't do that, and that becomes your New Year's resolution for 20 years. That's what this text is saying. That laziness is a slippery slope. If you're a sluggard, you have to address it. You have to do it right now. You have to do it right now. That's the point of this, is that laziness is a slippery slope. Now, look at, the, look at verse 10. This is interesting. If you slack off, if you are lazy, verse 11, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, meaning suddenly, and want, meaning you're in want, you need stuff, and want like an armed man. Does this mean that everybody who is in poverty is in poverty because of their laziness? No, it does not. Okay, let me give you a quick biblical overview of economics. We ready? Due to this text. There is righteous wealth, righteous rich, and there's unrighteous rich, just like there is righteous poor and unrighteous poor. We have a tendency, no matter what side you fall on, into on the political spectrum, to think of all rich people as one way or all poor people as another way, and it switches depending on where you are politically. Here's the biblical idea. Some people are wealthy, not because they're greedy or corrupt, but because they've worked hard, they've had good ideas, they've sold businesses. That's righteous wealth. Other people, though, are wealthy because of unrighteous means. They've climbed on the backs of their employees. They've broken contracts. They've stolen ideas. And it's the same way when it comes to poverty. Some people are in poverty due to no fault of their own. I think of a lady, for example, who got cancer, and her insurance ran out, and she had no more money, and she was working hard, and she was doing everything she was supposed to do, and she was in poverty. But there's also a form of unrighteous poverty which is due to sinful decisions, which is due to laziness, drug use, whatever it might be, that leads to that poverty. And so what we need to do in our thinking as Christians is we need to separate out righteous wealth from unrighteous wealth, 
and righteous poor from unrighteous poor because you will address and help those four different groups differently. You will address and help those different groups differently. Okay? What we are commanded to do as Christians, we are commanded to care for the poor. But what that means is we have to do what actually will help that poor person. Sometimes it's giving money. Sometimes it's not. It depends. It's going to be a case-by-case. But this text is not simply saying that if you, uh, <clears throat> this text is not simply saying that if you are in poverty, therefore you necessarily were lazy. What it's saying is that sometimes the reason that poverty can overtake you is due to laziness, poor planning, whatever it might be. Okay, let me give you some more biblical verses. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Okay? We do not enable people in their sin. We do not enable people in their sin. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. All right? <clears throat> now, with this in mind, I've got five take-homes for you, five practical things. I know this is kind of a weird text, by the way. I'm going to get to the gospel here in a second. I know this is a weird text. You don't typically come into church and they say, hey, let's talk about ants and not being lazy, all right? Let me give you five things to take home from this text. Number one, do your work to the best of your ability because you are doing it for God. Do whatever it is that you do to the best of your ability because you are doing it for God. If you are an employee, do not be slacking off. Do not be stealing time from your employer. I want you to read your Bible, but if you're on the clock, that's not the time to read it. Be faithful, even if your boss isn't watching. Even if you have a bad boss, do you know why? Because you're not doing it for your boss. You're doing it for God himself. If you're an employer, be kind to your employees. I know you don't have to legally, but biblically you do. Be gracious to them. Be kind to them. Do not overwork them. Well, they can just go somewhere else if they want that. Your job is to go above and beyond. Best thing I ever learned about leadership, I worked for a guy at a company. It was a guy who was an army ranger, and he was also a law enforcement officer, and he was a small business owner. And what he would do as the leader is he would every time do the job that nobody wanted to do. If somebody had to fly out for a conference, he would go. If somebody had to meet with somebody that was trouble, he would meet with them. If somebody had to come in on the weekend, he would come in so his employees didn't have to. Being a leader means you do the job that nobody else wants to do. It doesn't mean you use the people under you so that you don't have to do the hard thing. Wherever you are in your work, in your job, if you're a wife, you're taking care of that home or those kids or whatever, not for your husband, but to the glory of God, okay? Number two, plan ahead wisely. Plan ahead wisely. That's something we're supposed to see when we see that the ant is gathering in summertime and gathering in harvest. Plan ahead wisely. Save up for retirement. Save up for college. Have contingency plans be smart with what you're doing. That's righteous. That's righteous. I'm not here giving you leadership or business principles because I know nothing about either of those things. I'm giving you Bible. Be a faithful steward of the resources you've been given, okay? Now, when Jesus says not to worry about tomorrow, that doesn't mean don't plan ahead. The person who worries about tomorrow and the person who faithfully plans ahead, their actions will actually look pretty similar, but the heart with which they do it is different. There's a way where you can plan ahead and form all these contingency plans because you don't think that God loves you and you think he's going to drop you. But then there's a way to plan ahead and be faithful because you're just trying to be a good steward, a good caretaker of what God has entrusted to you, okay? Number three, 
<coughs> Practice self-discipline. Practice self-discipline. That's what we're supposed to see from the ant not having a leader or a ruler over it making it work, okay? Now, <clears throat> here's the deal. Let me, let me give, you a, give you an interesting thought on something. Okay, you're not just going to, if, if you find yourself convicted by this text today, so you say, man, I feel like maybe I'm not doing my work to God's glory, I'm being a little bit slothful. You're not just going to wake up one day and then be self-motivated all, all of a sudden. You're not just going to wake up one day and all of a sudden you're just hardworking. What you're going to have to do is you're going to have to practice what you want to become now. Okay, I'll give you an example. I was actually talking to a couple about this recently. If you want to become a good flute player, do you just say to yourself, I'm going to only play the flute once I think I'm already good at it? Does that work? No, what you do is you take a flute, and the first time you sit down and try to play it, it sounds awful and everyone hates you, okay? The second time you sit down to try to play the flute, it sounds awful and everybody hates you and they're telling you to get out of the house. The third time you sit down to play the flute, it's awful and everybody hates you. But after enough time, you actually start to become a little bit better of a flute player. You practice it while you're not good at it and you become better at it. Same way with hitting a baseball. Do you think you could stand right now and hit a major league curveball? Would you say to yourself, I'm only going to try that once I feel like I can do it? No, you would have to train. You would have to practice. And the first time you tried to hit a major league curveball, it would whiz past you and you wouldn't even see it. But the more you practice and the more you practice and the more you practice, the better you get at it. Now, here's what's interesting. This is true biblically. This comes from Aristotle, the philosopher, but it's also a biblical principle. <clears throat> you can practice walking in righteousness. You can practice virtue. You can practice self-discipline even though you're not good at it now. So what that means is it doesn't mean you have to get up tomorrow and just seize the day. Take little steps of faithfulness. You can practice discipline. If a beautiful woman walks by and you're tempted to look at her, and instead you look the other way, guess what happens the next time a beautiful woman walks by? It's easier to look away because you've been practicing that. If you check her out the next time a beautiful woman walks by, it's easier to check her out because you've been practicing unrighteousness. So if you find yourself in this today and you feel, man, I, I want to be a harder worker, I want to do my work to the glory of God, start with those little steps of practicing discipline. <clears throat> Number four, fight laziness. Fight laziness. According to this text, fight laziness and go to bed tired. You have been given the amount of grace you need today to get through today. You haven't been given the grace to get to tomorrow today. You'll be given that grace tomorrow, okay? When you are working, work hard, and when you're done, stop completely. Don't fritter. We're always in a state of like half working. So we're at work, and we should be working, but we're also slacking off, and we're also doing personal errands, we're also doing whatever. And then when we go home, we're not fully resting. We're still checking emails on our phone and doing other work and thinking about a meeting that's coming up. So we're never working to the glory of God or resting to the glory of God. When you're working, work hard. When you're done, quit completely. Well, Zach, my employer won't let me do that. I have to answer emails in the evening. Then find a different job because I guarantee you your kids would rather have more of you in a smaller house. Okay? And then the last one. This is going to sound like I'm giving a cheesy motivational speech to a t-ball team, so bear with me. Work hard, play hard, rest hard. Here's what I mean by that, biblically. Okay? Here's what I mean by that. <clears throat> Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. If you are working, work really hard and do a good job for God's glory. 
If you're resting, rest really hard. Completely relax. Don't be thinking about work. If you're having fun, have a lot of fun. Non-sinful fun. Non-sinful fun. If you're having fun, have a lot of fun. Laugh so hard that you're crying and your stomach hurts. That glorifies God. One of the things John Piper says, who's a pastor up in Minnesota who's brilliant, one of the things he said, he says, one of the biggest problems with humanity is we don't pursue anything passionately. Christians don't pursue Jesus passionately. We don't pursue reading our Bible passionately. We just kind of dabble in our Christianity. And then even lost people don't pursue their sins passionately. They just kind of dabble in it. Don't do that. Don't have your favorite color be beige. Whatever you're doing, be fully there and do it for the glory of God. When you're working, you're working hard because you know the God who created work. When you're resting, you're resting hard. You're sleeping in because you know the God who created rest. When you're having fun, you're having fun to the glory of God. Do you feel guilty, by the way, when you're having fun and it's not sinful? You shouldn't. God is a God of great joy. Everything worth doing is worth overdoing. I hate how Christian music is often cheesier and not as good as regular music. I hate how Christian movies are cheesier and often not as good as regular movies. I hate how Christian comedians are cheesier and often not as funny as regular comedians. We should be the best at these things. We should be striving for excellence because we're doing it for the glory of God. Everything worth doing is worth overdoing. Now, let me end with this. <clears throat> Self-motivation is a virtue. Trying to save yourself is not. Trying to save yourself is not. This passage is written to those who already are in fellowship with God. You cannot earn favor with God. You cannot earn salvation. It is a gift 100% because God has sent his son, Jesus, who died on a cross for your sins so that you might be forgiven. That's hard for us to get. It's hard for us to get that in every other area of our life, we work hard. You have to work hard to get a job. You have to work hard to keep a job. You have to work hard to get a spouse. You have to work hard to keep a spouse. You have to work hard to have kids. You have to work hard to keep your kids alive. You have to work hard in all these other areas of life. But here's the one area that you just get to rest in. Ready? Salvation. Your justification. It's hard for us because every other good thing in life we have to work hard for, but salvation is a gift given to you by God. Christ has worked hard on your behalf to provide spiritual rest for you. We are commanded to follow God's laws and we have failed. And so instead, Christ has come and he has lived the life that we should have lived. I've disobeyed God. He's obeyed God. He has taken the punishment for sin that I deserve. I've rebelled against God. I deserve to be killed. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus dies on my behalf, and he's raised bodily on the third day, as one day we will be raised bodily, showing that he is God's son. Sin has been paid for. He is the king, and one day he's coming back, and everything's going to be okay. So with this passage, don't leave here and just say, okay, I need to try harder for God. No, no, no. You're loved, you're forgiven, you're accepted because God already did the work on your behalf. And now you're free to work hard from a grace-motivated effort. Not a fear-motivated effort, a grace-motivated effort. We do because we're loved. We don't do to become loved. It's not I try harder and do better and then God loves me. It's God loves me. He's shown it in Christ when I was at my worst. And now, therefore, it changes my life. Let me pray for us as the men come forward and get ready to pass out the elements for communion. <coughs> Father, I thank you for today and thank you for this text. Uh, I just confess that uh, I fail on both accounts with this. 
there are times when I idolize work and there are times when I despise it. There are times where I work when I should be resting and there are times I rest when I should be working that I fail in both uh, idolatry uh, and laziness. And so I thank you, though, that Christ has come. I thank you that I have a substitute. I thank you that there has been one that has been perfect on my behalf. And so that's what we celebrate. We don't celebrate the fact today that we're awesome. We celebrate the fact that you're awesome. And so we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for sending Christ. We thank you for sending the Holy Spirit who dwells in our heart through faith to guide us. I pray against misunderstanding that anybody in here goes home and just says, okay, to make God happy, I need to try harder. No. I pray for rest. I pray that we would actually find our strength and our hard work from a foundation of resting in you. I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.